Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, Richard. Hi. Hey. <laughs> How are you? Uh, sorry to be here last time. Hi. Uh, last time I saw you in Edinburgh? Could have been, yeah. I think it was, um, in, I think it was in Edinburgh. I keep, I keep, I think, missing in you by about um, 15 minutes. I've been frequently <laughs> in and out of various places where you've just been or about to be. Uh, Chubb has been a running theme about the last five years. <laughs> well, I'm here now. Uh, Joe, Joe moves quickly, wherever he is. Yeah, I have been, to. I've been noticing that. We're almost on the same wavelength. It's because they're after us. That's right. Slightly different frequently. <laughs> yes. He likes to walk before they make him run. That's right. Oh, hey, we're good. We are good. Yes, we recorded all that. We did record all that. But now we have no badinage to put at the beginning of our episode. No, that is badinage. She's talking about however he goes that you're not there. Oh, I see. You're you're used to scandals. You're used to people coming in and saying terrible things about people. I I thought you don't realize the microphone. all that stuff out. I usually do, yeah. (laughs) I save it, though. I save it. Um, (laughs) Yes. Uh, Richard, thank you for coming in. Well, it's a, it's a joy being here. I probably shouldn't even be here because I was meant to fly out on the weekend. But the um, the movie's been doing so good that um, Richard has a new movie. <clears throat> Richard it's, has a new movie. I know. Well, we um, shall I do an official introduction? Uh, yes, do that. Okay, as well, you know, we we have this ongoing thing because we're a podcast. Because he basically can't listen to it without knowing what it is. I keep saying we shouldn't do introductions at all. This is the movies that made me. With your hosts, Josh Olson and Joe Dante. We're here with uh, the great Richard Stanley. Um, I have, uh, uh, I got to see Colorado Space last week at the Vista Theater. Um, which is a wonderful screening and a terrific film, thanks to Daniel Noah and uh, Elijah Wood, who, who invited me to come along. Our dear who friends sat of the in show, those very chairs. <laughs> who sat in these very chairs, yes, and walked us through their favorite movies. Um, but uh, no, it's, it's a wonderful film. Um, it's, uh, it's, um, uh, it's distinct. It's unique. It's, um, it's, it's, it's Lovecraftian. It's Lovecraftian, I guess. It's disconcerting. Um, but, uh, uh, thank you for coming in. We're thrilled to have you, uh, come to talk to us about movies that have inspired you. It's an absolute pleasure, sir. It's all music to my ears. Ah. Um, you, uh, it's in the, in the back and forth. Um, sometimes I can pull it off. Sometimes I can, I can sort of, ah, yes. And sort of bluff my way through, uh, long conversations about things I know nothing about, but I'm going to confess up front. So it'll help you and how you. Uh, discuss this stuff with me. My my Lovecraft begins and ends with a collection of his short stories that I read about 25 years ago. Um, but uh, Richard, do you want to talk about sort of Lovecraftian influences in other films and so forth? Was that the, uh, and you're obviously, I mean, look, I'm, I'm very aware of him, of course, and I have friends who 
uh, uh, they think I'm some sort of pariah for not uh, having having joined the church the way they did. But um, oh, it's coming time. <laughs> I mean, the one thing I've noticed throughout this whole process is I've got a, a sort of lucky combat jacket I wear when I'm shooting, which um, I sewed a Cthulhu um, badge yes. onto it once this project started. And wherever I've been, whether it's been in the French Pyrenees or in Russia or in Africa. Um, very young children have been able to come up to me and point at the badge and go, look, Cthulhu. Um, <laughs> the, the, the extent to which um, that meme has saturated contemporary culture. Yes. And, uh, it's <clears throat> instantly identifiable yeah. even to kids who have no idea who Lovecraft That's is. Amazing. Right. But somehow its, its tendrils have found its way everywhere from Japan to Patagonia. Yeah. So um, quite how that happened without any um, corporate power actually owning it. That is or, fascinating. Um, deliberately, isn't it? deliberately promoting it. It's like it's not like Star Wars in that um, right. nobody's actually been authorizing the toys and the T-shirts. It's just done it all by itself. Um, yet there's an armada of fridge magnets and soft so, toys, cookery books, pop-up so are books. So are all of his? Uh, is all of his work public domain now? I believe pretty much all of it is public domain. Because fact, I remember in the fifties and late fifties, early sixties, there were a bunch of anthologies put out, usually edited by August Durla. Uh, that were Lovecraft, you know, yeah. and, and and also Lovecraft would be lumped in with Arthur Machen and you know other their similar kind of writers as as sort of weird tales type things. Um, but I don't think I don't think the movies got to Lovecraft until it's surely Die Monster Die wasn't the first Lovecraft movie. Um, Die Monster Die might have been the first um, official Lovecraft movie, the first one to. Um, mm actually acknowledge it on the credits. Hmm. I think it was probably a, a creeping influence for some years, and it's debatable how much, um, say, Color Out of Space influenced, um, say, um, 1950s science fiction movies. Um, yeah. oh, the I, basic I, trope of the meteorite coming from outer space and striking the remote farm, and then the hick farmer in dungarees who comes out and pokes the meteor for rock was kind of super well established already. Yeah. So uh, it's possible that the first iteration of that might have been in the um, the nineteen twenty six story, Ra the haunted Ra palace. Well, the haunted palace actually. Roger first. Roger Gorman told me that he uh, <clears throat> when when they were um, uh, mining Poe and got to a point where it's like okay, we kind of used up a lot of these, and then they did the haunted palace, which was conceived as a Lovecraft picture, uh, and based on the Lovecraft story, and it's it is indeed a Lovecraft, but then. Uh, the guys at AIP just said, well, you know, nobody knows who that guy is. Let's just say it's an Edgar Allan Poe movie. <laughs> so they did. They call it Edgar Allan Poe's Haunted Palace. But it actually is the the the, the story of um, Arthur, uh, what's it? That's the um, case of Charles Dexter Ward. Charles, Charles, Charles Dexter um, Ward, yeah. yeah. So that's actually the first one. That's, yeah, that's Diamond's Eye was the next week, the next year. And yeah. Dodge two years later, yeah. Uh, and. Well, the palace stands up quite good, actually. I think it's oh, um, yeah. it's a fine um, double turn from um, St. Vincent. Yeah, but, yeah, it's good. It's um, got a great score. Richly enjoyable. Yeah, lo lovely colors. Um, it, it's it's a bit tricky with the first two because exactly as you say, AIP were still um, trying to force it into the template of the Poe movies. And, well, what's um, been successful? You know, we don't know if this will be successful, but let's go with something we know is successful. Yeah, and there's also people were still trying to get their heads around um, what shelf to put Lovecraft on, because the stories have always oh, sort of okay. floated somewhere between outright horror and um, speculative sci-fi and right. mm. um, something a little bit more trippy and psychedelic. It's strange to me that he existed so long before the invention of LSD, because um, 
by the last few stories like Shadow Out of Time, which is all about um, alien consciousnesses that can exist outside of time. And um, it, we're really in, in something which um, isn't anything like the 19th century Gothic horrors. He kind of steps quite a long way away from the creepy castles, um, vampires, werewolves, ghosts. Right, but then when they, the, then when they, when they uh, moved up to the Dunwich Horror a couple of years later, it was very trippy and very psychedelic and very aimed at the uh, burgeoning um, teen um, trip market, basically, uh, with, with lots of psychedelic uh, colors and weird editing and strange, uh, you know, uh, optical effects and uh, codoliths and stuff like that. Um, so, it, it, but, but right around that time, they also started doing um, Lovecraft for TV. I remember Night Gallery. Night Gallery, yeah. Night Gallery, yeah. Pick, Pickman's model. Yeah. Um, Pickman's model, and there's a lovely um, parody of Lovecraft in, um, what is it, um, Professor um, Peabody's last lecture, I think, so, which is uh, a full-on um, Lovecraftian parody from Night Gallery. And well, I was Night- say, and then years later, <clears throat> to sort of get back to your point about the, the spreading influence, I'm thinking about how many people I know who just sort of threw you know, the subculture came to Lovecraft on their own. And weirdly, I have plenty of friends who absolutely love him. And invariably, when I meet a Lovecraft fanatic, I'm, they're always people I get along with. But, uh, uh, but all those people, uh, or a lot of those people have sort of found their way into this industry um, and, and, you know, work stuff into it. Uh, uh, a friend of mine um, created the, uh, the new iteration of Scooby-Doo, the last one, which is actually a really good one. And they, um, uh, in fact, he called me up and I, I hooked him up with uh, my friend Harlan Ellison, where Harlan played himself in an episode of Scooby-Doo in which Harlan goes up against Jeffrey Combs playing H.P. Hatecraft. Right. And they got H.P. Hatecraft onto a children's television show. So, <laughs> um, and yeah, without without any kind of corporate machine pushing that awareness, that's that's a really good point. Well, Cthulhu's been getting around, I seem to remember. <laughs> yeah. He showed up in the animated Ghostbusters. Yeah. The, oh, did he? Yeah, and the collect call of Cthulhu, and there's um, been squid-faced gentlemen showing up and yeah. everything from Pirates of the Caribbean through um, Aquaman, and yeah. um, then um, the, currently on in cinemas, there's tentacles prominently in Lighthouse, and mm-hmm. um, it's definitely great Cthulhu and the deep ones that show up at the end of Underwater. Yeah. So it's at least two stealth Lovecraft movies. I wonder I if think. there was any Lovecraft influence in Shush the Octopus. Which is which is I've seen which is sort of the in the light. <laughs> You're the first yeah. person I've met has actually seen that. And, um, <laughs> I, I that own title it on has DVD. been it's terrifying. That title has been resonating in my head ever since I is first really? stumbled over it. Yeah, it's no, very it's, hard it's, to, it's, it's, it's to a forget hook. a title it's, it's like definitely that. Definitely worth seeing. It runs fifty-five minutes. Yeah, yeah. it's it's a short one. It's a short <laughs> one. Uh, you can. It's a palate cleanser before. Uh... <laughs> I mean, going back in time, I've often been um, intrigued as to what um, movies influenced Lovecraft. Um, he was pretty, um, I guess, anal about his material, his horror stuff. So he kind of really hated um, the James Whale Frankenstein. Oh, I really? think he was really unimpressed with the Lugosi Dracula as well, both times, because he felt they deviated too far from um, the from the source material. Mm. But I would love to have gotten his opinion on King Kong. Huh, um, yeah. Something that's always in Yeah, an original where he couldn't be. Yeah, um, the original um, ancient god that's still alive and still being worshipped on a remote island somewhere, which is then discovered oh. in the present day. Yeah. Because that, yeah. some of those themes, um, yeah, resonate quite strongly of his material. And I know 
Kong was sort of the Jurassic Park of its day. It's hard to ignore that the the, Loch Ness, the first Loch Ness monster sightings didn't start up until about a year or so after um, Kong's release. And I think it oh, helped really? put the notion of dinosaur survivals into people's heads for the first time, at least in, yeah. a, um, a, in a kind of a broad um, manner like that. So um, some part of me keeps wondering what, whether um, HP actually made it to a screening or not. Oh, he must have. How, how did you miss King Kong? When did he uh, pass? Yeah, I think it's somewhere around um, 1936, 37, hmm. and Kong's hmm. around 1933. Right, so he had a good yeah. he had a good chance to watch a lot of movies. Yeah. It should have been an opportunity. Yeah, it's a shame. There's well, they, a collection they, of they basically film stopped criticism. making horror movies in 1936 because of the, the ban in Britain, uh, and so he he. But, the, but that was the good that was the good years when they were making a lot of a lot of horror pictures. Whether or not he would he would relate to them or not, I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting to know whether what, what the relationship is between Kong and Cthulhu, but um, I guess we'll never know for sure. Yeah. I've been intrigued for years at how um, Kong sets the template for um, the um, the plesiosaur creature, which has a, a long neck and a, um, a classic um, Loch Ness-type head. I mean, um, a lot of paleontologists now suggest that plesiosaurs can't even hold their heads like that. That um, they're bottom feeders and their necks are designed for them feeding off the bottom of the ocean. Ah, and that they never actually surface and stick up their necks and their heads and look around in the manner that they do in, in King Kong, and right. um, which echoes like the, so many of the photographs from, um, from Loch Ness. Hmm. Some part of me has always wondered about that, the same as the way that um, greys only started showing up in different UFO abductees' bedrooms kind of after Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which um, really popularized that look for yeah, um, Wait, didn't for they, aliens. when the Whitley Strieber thing, wasn't that before? No, it's well after. Is that after? Yeah. I Somehow, wow, that's interesting. Somehow I thought they were, huh, okay. When was that James Earl Jones TV movie? Uh, 70s, I think. 70s, so, okay, but Alien and you just mean the specific description. Yeah, the way that things morph from one generation to another, the way that yeah. flying saucers are round in the 1950s and then become you know, triangular by the 80s. Right, um, right. With a different, um, I guess, um, memes and archetypes kind of shift yeah. from one um, generation to another. And it's usually because of mass, um, mass marketing movies that have become extremely successful that have ingrained different ideas into people's heads. I mean, no one had thought of time travel before H.G. Wells' Time Machine. Mm. Um, someone's got to um, start the um, the ball rolling somewhere, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think dinosaur survival is probably the first one shows up in Jules Verne's Journey to the Center of the Earth, and then sure, and, uh, and the Lost <laughs> World, Lost World, the Lost um, World yeah. shortly afterwards. But then Kong was the thing that really mm. brought it to um, popular attention. Well, that's interesting. I, I didn't know that about the. Uh, uh, so you're saying the Loch Ness monster couldn't actually. Yeah, it's never uh, been physiologically practicable for it to work like that. But that's only if we're that's thinking the Loch Ness monster is a plesiosaur, which right. it probably can't be. Completely. Uh, did you, I remember about 15 years ago, some, and it was a kid who was just a, an avid fan of dinosaurs, um, rethunk, rethunk, uh, the entire Tyrannosaurus Rex um, uh, mythology, essentially. Do you remember this? And, and all the paleontologists. It was more recent than that. Was, I thought it was, and, yeah. and the idea being that a creature with, you know, it's got tiny little hands, which are utterly useless. And um, this big head and the way it's shaped, we've all been looking at it as this terrifying creature, but this kid figured out it's a carrion eater. It, it was meant to walk bent over with its face to the ground and its head was built for just eating decayed flesh. 
And then, in fact, if you lived in those days, the least terrifying thing in the world would be to be chased by a tyrannosaur because it, it couldn't catch you. It couldn't do anything. It, it's, it was like a vulture. But the, the image of it as this terrifying monster is so compelling, we've stuck with it beyond the... Mm. Uh, Plus, they apparently had feathers. Yeah, yeah. Which is another, <laughs> <Is> that? <laughs> another thing we haven't really caught up to. I love, that, I love that they were pink with feathers. That are <laughs> <laughs> all my childhood nightmares. Uh, fluffy carrion eater. A fluffy carrion eater. Um, so what What were you, um, I mean, obviously you came to to, um, uh, to Lovecraft through through reading him first, I would assume. Is that with your, your first introduction was the actual word or did you come to him through film? Um, no, I came to him through, actually through my mother. It was uh, H.P. Lovecraft's my mother's favorite author. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And, oh, um, wow. Even, oh. Be- <laughs> even before I was reading it, um, I knew that she was um, very um, snippy about um, the lovecraft Dulith collaborations. It's like, no, that's not the real thing. She was, um, she, there, there was a real thing and a sort of um, a core canon of stories which she prized over the imitations. And I, I think I noticed that from the time I was five or six, so... I gave her a copy of um, Case of Charles Dexter Ward for a birthday present at one point. And so it was the one Lovecraft story she hadn't read. And I remember she didn't enjoy that one too much. She, I think her favorite story was Rats in the Walls. Oh, I know. And um, because of the way that she unprized his fiction and Edgar Allan Poe as well, yeah. it meant that um, I started reading it very young. I think she must have read me some of um, Dream Quest for Unknown Kadath, one of the longer Dunsanian fantasies when I was probably seven or eight as um, bedside reading. But by the time I was 12 or 13, I'd gotten through um, all of the main stories and was familiar with Cthulhu and the, the Necronomicon. Color Out of Space would have um, risen to the top of the pile as a 12 or 13-year-old because we already were mucking around with Super 8 cameras and um, shooting short films. And it's kind of the um the low hanging fruit of the of the canon because it's set on a on a one farm and involves one family and it isn't um set at the bottom of the Mariana Trench or um, mm-hmm. on another planet it was um, vaguely conceivable that one could so possibly you, shoot something like that so did did you do that <clears throat> Um, I didn't. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think um, I, I must have sketched out some ideas, and there's um, oh, probably wow. two, three pages of um, tentative script. And I, I know that um, I, I've, there's a partial storyboard from when I was about 12 of Pickman's model, so I was sniffing around that, but um, never actually committed to um, trying to shoot it on Super 8. Uh-huh. I think I just with Pickman's model, I just couldn't um, create a ghoul that was um, fully satisfactory. <laughs> uh, in fact, I think ghouls still need um, their, their movie. I, I haven't quite seen a, a ghoul film that's gone all the way in the, the Lovecraftian sense of it. I mean, what? How, how, would, how would it go all the way? Um, well, ghouls in the, in the original sense of the word yeah. are a carnivorous subhumanoid species. They're right. not even human. Uh, that live off the dead, uh, live in graveyards that build um, labyrinths of tunnels between the between the graveyards and their lairs, but they're nothing remotely human. I always imagined that they were um partway between a baboon and some kind of um hyena or um carrion eater, very, very powerful, flesh rending jaws and heavy pit bull type shoulders. I think the way that um Virgil Finley and the weird tales artists represent them is pretty strong. They were actually something that came out of um Arabian mythology, they first show up in the Arabian Nights, uh, um, original spelling G-H-U-L, ghoul, as a, oh. a, 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 a subspecies that lives in graveyards. And then having found their way into um, 
the English language. Um, Lovecraft and um, one of his contemporaries, Clark Ashton Smith, I think, made an extremely good use of them. And um, from then onwards, they've been floating around. But they're not really just creepy human beings or um, living dead people or zombie-type guys. They really are a, a, another species entirely. And um, I haven't quite seen the, the movie which skewers yeah. that. There are a few things <clears throat> which go towards it. Right. Not many. Yeah, I can't think of any. Um, that's that's it. I, I didn't know that either. What? Uh, but but speaking of film, then back to film. What? Um, when did you start noticing? Because uh, obviously, you say some of these early films are direct Lovecraft adaptations. Um, but when did you start sort of noticing the other influences of him sort of seeping into other movies? Well, I guess I'm um, like a lot of folk out there. For the, up until um, Brian Usner and Stuart Gordon came along and started giving us some. Um, reasonably authentic adaptations. Um, <clears throat> during my um, formative years, I was one of those bratty, annoying kids that would generally go to see something like um, Die, Monster, Die, or um, Haunted Palace, and then come away fuming because it had altered the material or it <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> changed it in some way. And um, I was, fa- I guess, fairly uptight about those things. So um, for many years until um, Reanimator came along, I was getting most of my Lovecraftian thrills and spills from films which... Um, weren't uh, officially anything to do with Lovecraft. I think um, possibly the most Lovecraftian movie ever made is um, John Carpenter's Thing, which comes from a John W. Campbell story, Who Goes There? But in truth, um, the original story is strongly influenced by Lovecraft. Um, It owes a lot to a story called At the Mountains of Madness, which is a Lovecraft novella set in um, Antarctica and contains a lot of similar tropes. There are the Arctic arm base, the, the, the creature which is found in the permafrost, which isn't quite alive, which is dug out and then um, wakes up once they brought it back, and which does actually kill the people in the, um, in the Arctic base in the original Lovecraft story. The only trope it doesn't have is it isn't a xenomorph. It doesn't imitate people the way that it does in the um, John W. Campbell story, which appeared in the same magazine, an Amazing Stories magazine, about one year after um, Mountains of Madness. So um, it's mm. quite likely that John W. Campbell read the Lovecraft story, which was serialized in Amazing Stories, and then wrote something along a similar line. And do, do you think, I wonder if, I, I, I did not know that. I, were the, um, do you think the tentacles on the thing were uh, a direct homage in that case? Yeah, I think by then we'd established that uh, that, that kind of creature probably has tentacles. But right. what we love about the thing is that it's so protean that it um, never settles down to yeah. um, to one particular um, shape. So the, the sheer fact that it can keep transforming and keep changing on you is probably the thing which is the most terrifying about it. But it's that's not the only thing about the Carpenter movie which um, makes it um, Lovecraftian. I think one of the um, the key tropes of the, of his material is that. Um, a sense that um, there is no escape and that nothing you do you, you do is, is going to help you yeah. or save you from the situation. There's a negativity about his work. Like, I think the only two ways out of a Lovecraft story are death and madness. <laughs> yeah, there's, ne- there's, there's, there's never a happy ending. And, um, the thing gives us one of those rare, um, extremely bleak endings, which um, is one of the things that um, I love and adore about the movie as well as the, um, the completely um, alien... Um, anti-human um, Arctic landscape the characters are trapped in and the general sense of yeah, depersonalization. Lovecraft had no interest in, um, in humanity mm. or, in, um, or in characterization. He felt that um, that was getting in the way of his stories, that um, 
humanity. And I think in one in one letter he says that when you approach his work, you need to leave your humanity and your terrestrialism at the door. Uh, um, <laughs> That's so. right. That might be. I'm trying to sort of put my finger on why I never continued with him beyond the short stories. That that might be it. I tend to be sort of drawn in by characters. Yeah, he doesn't and do just, characters yeah, well. Yeah, um, there's no trace of a love story in any of his in any of his work. He, yeah, people say all great stories are love stories. Not in Lovecraft's case. Uh, <laughs> none of the characters ever have anything resembling a, a normal motivation. Right. There's never a, 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 a suitcase full of diamonds or um, <laughs> some kind of actual reason for them to be involved in the story. Usually they're just casual bystanders who happen to witness something impossible and who go insane or whose <laughs> lives crumble as a result. Ordinary family by a meteorite. Yeah. So, yeah, the thing for me was um, he had pressed all the right buttons when I was a kid. Um, I remember I saw it in a um, a cinema in um, in Botswana in South Africa, at least the edge of South Africa, and um, in a, in Umtata in a cinema called the Umtata Rama, and it was an almost entirely tribal audience on the edge of the Kalahari Desert, and um, wow. going straight into the yeah the thing that was first released the Arctic with that husky running through yeah. the snow. Yeah, what, what, what did I the have audience no make idea. Of... I imagine it must have totally turned their minds inside out. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't expecting it, <laughs> but um, so that was yeah, one huge influence. And uh, otherwise, you, uh, I've I've had lots of little sort of Lovecraftian frictions and moments in um, weird movies we don't expect it. Mostly in um, art house before, um, like um, before um, Stuart Gordon came along. And here I'm thinking um, Possession by Andrei Zalorsky with sure. Isabella Gianni that's got possibly the best tentacle sex in yes. any movie. Well. Uh, <laughs> 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 but, yeah, no, that's saying something. That's, yeah. No, it's, it's strong. It's, that is it's, a special it's, scene it's, in a special movie. That, that Carlo Rambaldi creation is um, yeah. nicely Lovecraftian. I really wish that um, Zalorsky had done more. I know that um, at the time he passed, he was trying very hard to make a, um, a Lovecraftian um love triangle movie between three quantum physicists called Dark Matter that really? was promoted with a, a poster showing this, these tentacles coming out of some, somebody's computer. And I thought, wow, I'm, I really hope he does his Lovecraftian romance, but he didn't, he didn't write down much of a script. Mm. Uh, those things <sighs> float around at the back of, the, um, of Zalorsky's mind. And I, I've stumbled over what feel, feel to me like Lovecraftian moments in um, Ingmar Bergman and Andre Tarkovsky as well, both were deep into the art house, but um, both Bergman and Tarkovsky um, hedge into territory where we suspect the existence of um, some kind of god or um, deity or organizing principle, but there's no certitude that it's actually friendly human or that it, or, or that it likes you in any way at all. And I think Bergman's winter light, the lady has a vision of God as a spider which is um, descending, uh, descending towards it to eat her. And uh, moments in Solaris and Stalker also, uh, the Tarkovsky films also, gave me shivers a little the first time I saw them, just huh. because of that sense of the, um, of the, of the absolute unknown, of, the, um, yeah. of something other and inhuman lurking behind the scenery. The malevolent unknown. Mm. Yeah. It took a while, though, <sighs> for um, yeah, genre cinema to quite get there. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I did the, the Bergman connection when you say that and i think of that scene it's it's like yeah so when you were growing up what what kind of films did you see like disney films i mean normal films like regular <laughs> kids or did you go into did you look for strange offbeat 
We don't I certainly normal. did, and I saw a lot of your movies. <laughs> <laughs> so normal, uh, which I went out of my way to find as a kid. Uh, to, I mean, the first movie I saw was um, King Kong, the 1933 original, which um, my dad had the good sense to bring home as a 60 millimeter print when oh, I was four years old. Must have been exciting. Showed it against the walls. The first movie I'd ever seen. We didn't have television in South Africa in those days, so it was just miraculous in many levels. But um, clearly, and how would that? Would he have? Or was your, would he have rented a projector? Yeah, we had, back in the days before VHS, we yeah, literally yeah. Were, we, we rented a 60 millimeter projector. And, and, and would you get the entire had, film? Or? The entire film, um, wow. big, big plunky prints. And um, it was um, the, the only form of, I guess, home entertainment that existed yeah. in um, the um, late 1960s in, um, in Southern Africa. So um, King Kong I was, was my, um, my first great love. Wow, um, that knocked me out for years and years. I, I think it directly um, influenced me to, to get into movie making, partly because um, I, I probably imprinted onto the um, the Carl Denham character of the movie and thought, "Wow, I'd love to do that for a living." <laughs> and, um, but it also just influenced my favorite director. Absolutely, well, just one step behind. You um, see him, and you're frightened. <laughs> yeah, I just love the fact he goes there. They're not really sure what's on the island, and then. They have a, gi- a giant ape, which they couldn't really have been expecting. The giant, <laughs> the giant ape kills most of his crew and pretty much everyone with him, but Denham remains confident. And when Kong's coming after the beach, he says, don't worry, we're going to be fine. We've got gas grenades. <laughs> and he's, he's prepared. <laughs> so a yeah, huge admiration from, um, and also obviously for Marion C. Cooper for um, the, um, the real-life director behind it. I'm just amazed that Marion was a biplane pilot, a, a barnstorming biplane He's pilot. He's in the movie. He's one of yeah, them. absolutely, who flew his own biplane. <laughs> they not, he not, not only created that incredible movie, but then um, he flew the biplane and they attacked their own miniature cog on top of the Empire State Building, which I, I, I found awesome as a child, and I still do. So, um, yeah, Kong and... Um, Denham and Marion C. Cooper were my role models from a young age. And I, that very quickly led me to um, being a Willis O'Brien fan and then to being a Ray Harryhausen fan. So very fast after that, I found yeah. the um, Sinbad movies and Jason and the Argonauts and then um, was um, happily queuing when Golden Voyage of Sinbad had its first release. And um, that, I think, hit me when I was 10 years old. And it was exactly what I needed at that point in time. So I, I spent an awful lot of time building tiny little sets of overgrown Mayan temples and trying to animate um, plasticine yeah. um, claymation dinosaurs and trying to do my own glass paintings and things, which I guess is what happens when you watch that kind of material. And obviously I found um, famous monsters of Filmland, which found its way all the way so over that made, to Africa. That made its way to South Africa. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, was one, it was a lifeline because they, I was the only creepy kid I knew out there. Yeah. Um, um, buying the Warren comics creepy and eerie and yeah. famous monsters I, I could see there were fan pages and that showed me that there were other creepy kids on the other side of the world who were so maybe you doing can similar tell, things <laughs> you mentioned Pickman's model a couple of times and I can't remember what I saw it in was it a did creepy or Warren did one of the Warren comics adapt it I know I've read a black and white comic adaptation of it I can't remember if it was one of them or one of Marvel's horror comics in the 70s does this ring a bell or now I've got a feeling they probably both did it. Okay. Um, Pickman's models quite quite frequently adapted. 
Okay, that and um, I've forgotten how I, I I don't even like to think how many amateur movies there are based on Pickman's model, sure. but as um, yeah, um, Gwen and Brian um, Callahan at the H.P. Lovecraft Festival in Portland will tell you I think Pickman's model and um, the music of Eric Zahn are the two most frequently submitted well, we, we um, short Pickman films. Well, you should you should tell the plot. Well, Pickman's model is the classic with where you've got the um the crazed guy um beatnik um artist character who is painting um utterly grotesque canvases of nightmarish scenes no one's ever seen before, and he excels himself with this portrait of um of a ghoul essentially of this um this terrifying subhumanoid creature eating the dead, and um it doesn't take too long for the lead character to realize that um Pickman is painting his work from life. And that there's a, a, a well in his basement that connects with the underworld, and, um, yeah, by which the uh, the creature is coming and going from the artist's studio. I guess one of the things holding people back and which people fall over on Pickman's model is no one's ever really able to um, come up with the paintings. Ah, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, um, the, the description of Pickman's paintings. They do a good job in Night Gallery. I do rather like the um, Pickman's art in, in Night Gallery. That's also a tough thing. I mean, you you did an interesting <laughs> thing. Not that you know, I'm going to break our cardinal rule and actually talk about uh, our guests' work, but <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, but because uh, um, one of the whole uh, defining aspects of the color out of space is that the color is one you've never seen before. Is that correct? And and you did a kind of interesting thing where obviously you can't really do that but uh the the effect you used was was an effective um alien kind of thing um it, it shimmers and it shifts and it changes and it always has this kind of i don't know sort of hot pinkish purple underneath to it that yeah around the outer edges it, it goes into um ultraviolet and yeah. infrared that's just working on the principle that um, the outer edges of the human spe- human's visual spectrum are ultraviolet and infrared. And I guess if something is uh, so is coming color. in or out of our perception, it sort of has to move through one color or another. Right. And then if you kind of blur those two together, you end up with something close to a, a kind of psychedelic magenta, which kind of becomes um, color out of space's default yeah. um, color simply because we can't really push beyond those two extremes. I think um, Stuart was going the same way with um, From Beyond. Uh, I noticed the moment they turn on the the resonator and From Beyond, we have a similar shade of um, ultraviolet starts um, creeping into the movie. But that's oh. just from applying a kind of mad science to um, to Lovecraft's work. Right. There's a lot of stuff he wrote about in um, colors from ni- the original stories from 1926 which um, is a long time before the readers or anyone coming to the material had uh, any ability really to understand what he was talking about or to, um, to visualize what he, was, what he was attempting to conceive. I mean, a good example is he um, describes, um, he mentions alien non-Euclidean geometry. Um, it's a term <laughs> that um, comes up in, um, it's in more than one story, this notion of non-Euclidean geometry. He describes some um, Cthulhu's lair like that in um, Call of Cthulhu. And I remember it when I was at school in the early 70s using this term non-Euclidean in an essay. And the teacher very aggressively put it, circling it in a red pen and saying that there's no such thing. And <laughs> um, marking, it, marking me down for it. But oh, no. All, it, it, in his opinion, all um, geometry was inherently Euclidean, and you couldn't have non-Euclidean geometry. But um, now, um, multiple years later, in 2020, 
the concept of fractal geometry is widely accepted. Um, we have chaos science. Yeah. We are aware that within chaos and within natural forms, there is another form of geometry at work, and there is another a pattern. There is a pattern to chaos. There is a you know, there is a pattern to energy within waves, within um, explosions, within all kinds of chaotic movements. And um, Lovecraft using driving at this notion of non-Euclidean geometry to describe the the vast and faceless forces of chaos in his stories, um, not entirely wrong. So, um, yeah, driving towards, yeah, ultraviolet and infra infrared, like um, ultrasound and infrasound, the notion that, um, well, you know, once you something becomes too high-pitched for human range, to go, we can no longer hear it, but uh, it's still there. It's, it's still perceptible to yeah. dogs and to, to animals. Mm -hmm. uh, animals have a wider visual and um, auditory spectrum than us humans, so can actually hear things that um, that we can't. That are and the same with um, very very deep bass. With mm -hmm. um, when you go into um, go into um, infrasound, into something which is so deep and so low that you actually can't physically hear it. It goes out of your range. You might be able to feel it with your diaphragm or with the, the with the soles of your feet. And there's also a, a, a similarly an olfactory spectrum. Um, um, what we can smell, um, I think, goes between um, something like sulfur and extreme bitter and extreme sweet, like roses and lilies on the one side. So we often hear, and when I, I look through um, a lot of reports of um, people who see um, visions of the Virgin Mary, say, at different um, sites and different shrines in Europe, or people who believe that they've been in contact with aliens or flying saucers, we often see the, these hallmarks on the different encounters. People talk about the smell of sanctity, the sweet smell of roses or lilies when the Virgin Mary appears mm -hmm. to them, which I think is one end of the olfactory spectrum. I think it's a, a side effect from having um, something, uh, an ultra-dimensional invasion or intrusion towards, towards consciousness. And uh, similarly, there's um, yeah issues with... Um, yeah, lost time, time distortion with not being able to um, fully retrieve the memory of um, what it was that just happened to you. I think that's because the human brain um, is simply incapable of uh, understanding something which is outside of completely outside of our dimension. If I was con so confronted by something fully ultra-dimensional, I probably wouldn't be able to see it. I probably wouldn't be able to describe it. And my brain would probably fidget through um, a whole bunch of different um, possibilities to try and give me the, the best explanation for what was going on. And it would probably tell me maybe I was having an acid flashback. Maybe it would tell me that um, someone was pushing me around and shining a flashlight in my face. It would, um, yeah, but I wouldn't actually know what was happening to me. Right. So, um, I, I, yeah, we tried to channel some of that into, into Lovecraft. We tried to apply a little bit of um, mad science to his work. Fantastic. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's funny you mentioned this. So I, I remember sometime in the late 80s uh, working at a production company in Hollywood and somebody came running in going, you have to see this. And we all ran outside. And the sky uh, over um, the, uh, uh, it was right by where, right by the Formosa Cafe. And 
it was this purplish, reddish, orangish cloud that had some edges to it, but some of it dissipated and parts of it seemed to be solid metal and other parts of it seemed to be flashing lights. And we found out later that a missile had you know, gone off and been blown up uh, in the atmosphere or something. And it was just at magic hour. So you're getting all these light effects and it all made sense, but there was a solid minute and a half where I remember we're all just standing there looking at a thing that your brain can't comprehend just the, ent- the totality of reality just shifted for me completely for a minute. It was like, if aliens are going to come here, they'll come in something like this. Cause I can't describe it. <laughs> yeah. I think there were similar responses from one of, um, um, Elon Musk's SpaceX launches a couple, I, I oh, think really? last year I, I was looking at footage that people were showing me on their telephones over the Hollywood Hills, where it was, um, again, um, so incomprehensible. It, it didn't look anything like an actual, yeah. an actual craft. Yeah. Uh, instead, there's a sort of widening ring of, of color and, um, which is to do with the, somehow the light reflecting through the, um, the effluence of the thing after it's, after it's shut off. But, um, Super strange watching that stuff from the ground uh, yes. when there's no accompanying explanation. Yeah. You, you, you don't know what, <laughs> what you're seeing. It's easy to assume that, oh, my God, the, the aliens have arrived. But I think we can, we can do that to ourselves even in quite simple ways. Like um, I've, I've heard accounts of um, friends' kids, for instance, getting freaked out by um, seeing a bright light in the sky which moves and gets bigger and right. more, more extreme and finally they get their teacher on the telephone and say well what's up there and they say well that's venus <laughs> and then they look outside and it sort of shrinks back to be a normal star and behave, right. behaves again but for the moment <laughs> when you're not really sure what the hell it is and, and, and especially once that's become like the consensus reality once more than 50 percent of the people in the room start thinking they don't know what it is then suddenly it gets very squidgy and strange and <laughs> until it could be defined as a star or a, 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 some kind of experimental craft or something, and then everyone settles down again and it, it stops misbehaving. Back into the consensus. <laughs> <laughs> ah, so um, next film on your list, Richard. <laughs> oh, we got to mention Brian and Stewart's work. I mean, it's no, oh, no, no accounting of um, yes. Lovecraftian fingerprints on our on the mass media would be complete without um, mentioning um, Reanimator, Reanimator sure. um, from beyond um, Dagon. And um, also absolutely adore Stuart's episode of Masters of Horror, um, yeah. the, his adaptation of um, Dreams of the Witch House, which I think has one of, um, for me, one of my favorite Lovecraftian moments in, um, in cinema. I, I love the moment in Witch House when the, um, the rat comes into the physics student's room while he's asleep and jumps up on his bed and he's fallen asleep reading a book on string theory and it runs down the spine of the book on string theory and it's got a little human face and comes up to him and goes, hey, hey, psst, hey. Uh, <laughs> that, that for me is a, a super Lovecraftian moment. It doesn't involve tentacles or anything, but it's got that kind of horrible sense of rubber reality and yeah. of, of things really not making sense. It's kind of funny, but it's kind of not funny as well, which is um, something I find with the, with the material because the material is so strange that at times you've, uh, I find myself... Um, trying not to giggle even when I'm reading the, um, the original um, Lovecraft stories. Well, that, yeah, I think that was probably the, um, that, that may have been what inspired me to finally seek out some Lovecraft. I mean, I've obviously been very aware of him, but I feel like Reanimator was the first film that anyone had made that had any kind of mainstream acceptance and awareness that was actually 
allegedly a, a Lovecraft adaptation, at least for my generation, for our generation. Um, I mean, Reanimator rocked. It was hit me hard. It was amazing came out. film. Yes. Yeah. A very good year. I think I saw it in the double bill in a rep cinema in London with Return of the Living Dead. And oh, wow. Adoring both of them. <laughs> in, mm, for so. different reasons. But yeah, both very funny. Reasons, both great zombie movies. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. And funny, I don't associate uh, Lovecraft with, with uh, overt humor, though. That um, I mean, Reanimator is a very funny film while being terrifying. I think a lot of that is Stuart. Yeah. yeah. It's, I'm pretty sure the talking head joke was not in the original. <laughs> no, sure, that surely wasn't. Um, Lovecraft, uh, yeah, really, uh, any sexuality in these stories is, is repressed to the point where it's almost invisible. Um, when asked about whether he ever had sex by one uh, arm of his correspondence, Lovecraft's response was, he said, um, of course I am familiar with amatory phenomena, but only from cursory reading. <laughs> so, uh, that, that he was pretty buttoned down that way around. So sadly, the um, the, the talking head moment and to um, yes. Jeffrey's incredible line when he walks into the the operating theater and sees what's going on when um, David Gale is holding his head between um, Barbara Crampton's legs and the entire surgical team are now all, all all zombies. And I think um, Jeffrey just takes it in his stride. It's all happened while he's been unconscious, but he kind of walks in and goes, "Doctor." I'm surprised at you. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Here you are with the secret of life in your hands, and you're trusting for bubble-headed co-ed. So, um, so yeah, I, I adored that movie. It's um, based on, um, yeah, one of Lovecraft's lousiest stories. So in fact, um, the original um, reanimated stories, I think he wrote when he was 13. Oh, wow. Um, it's Juvenalia. It's stuff he wrote when he was very, very young, and um, he, he wrote it as a, a sort of series for one of his friend's amateur magazines. So it appeared initially in sort of two-page installments in Home Brew magazine, when Lovecraft's about 13. It's yeah, clearly a Frankenstein knockoff, but, um, and not, not really symptomatic of his later work, and that he never really returned to the, um, the zombie um, Frankenstein um, Bilou. Um, there's some great stuff in the original stories, which, um, I mean, um, not all of that's on screen. What I do love in the um, original Lovecraft material is that it's, in, uh, it's set in um, the turn of the century. And um, Herbert West and um, his, um, and Dan, poor Dan Kane, his, um, his buddy, his buddy um, not only graduate from Muscatonic in the original stories, but they go to World War I. Um, they, it all takes off to the Western Front. And there's a, um, a, um, a Herbert West in the trenches at World War I section in the original Lovecraft stories, which, um, yeah, is very, um, still very uh, attractive. Does it go where intriguing. I think it's going to go? Yeah, it, it, it does get really bad, <clears throat> uh, which um, is some part of the story that um, obviously um, Stuart couldn't go with when they modernized the adaptation, although I, I've always kind of loved the idea of um, resituating Herbert West as a into um, basically um, some kind of casualty theater or into um, some kind of combat situation. Interesting. Or, you know, if there's a, if 1917 does well enough, maybe there's a... <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'd love to do a World War One ghoul movie. Uh, I always thought, you know... We're, we're, the trenches. We're, yeah, all, we're the trenches and all those bodies. Uh, yeah. like, our suffering is, the, you know, is their harvest and um, the, the ghouls and things grow fat on human pain and when there's billions of bodies going into the ground, you'd think that would be a, a very good time for whatever the, um, the carrion eaters are. It seems kind of ripe for the 
good time for that. Ripe is the word. Ripe is the word, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of a grim place to be, though. I'm not sure how many, whether the audience would turn out for a, fle- uh, a trench movie with some, some with kind course. of, yeah, with flesh eating, um, carnivorous, some. Um, some well, humanoid you creatures. Can bet that if, if 1917 is a worldwide hit, the Italians will make one. Oh, there you go. Yes. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> well, they do it all in one shot, though. <laughs> even, even he didn't do it all in one I, shot. I'm just kidding. Um, what, what was it like for, uh, for you as a, as, a, as a fan when uh, Reanimator came out and made that splash? I mean, was it, uh, was it satisfying? Were you, because I know you've, you know, were, were you upset that the adaptation was less than faithful and that people were getting a watered down product or were you, you know? I was a lot older by then. Yeah. Um, so you got, okay. there, I'd, I'd grown up considerably between the time of um, the, the Corbin movies and the time, by the time um, Reanimator right. arrived. So I was a lot more forgiving, um, a lot more laid back. I think I'd um, discovered marijuana. So I was probably a little bit more relaxed about things. And, <laughs> um, so I just had a great time with Reanimator. Uh, and also as it's one of the, um, I guess the um, the less important Lovecraft stories, it's sort of a, a throwaway tale to begin with. I think one's welcome to do um, pretty much anything with it. And um, just great to see um, Miskatonic University on screen and to um, to see someone um, trying to um, visualize Lovecraft's world. Lovecraft created a um, sort of a shared universe that right. um, all of his stories roughly existed. And he also um, was canny enough to encourage other people to... Um, write stories set in that same shared universe so it's been getting larger and more detailed over the years and um the whole of lovecraft's arkham county with um arkham and some um, central university muscatonic u and then the outlying towns dunwich and um kingsport um um innsmouth which is down on the coast um aylesbury etc well, I, that's the thing is, I, I think um, Stephen King also acknowledges yeah. a, a very a Lovecraftian influence in terms of uh, creating the um, that the, world, yeah, yeah the world mm-hmm. and the terrain they're in, and um, little little bits of Lovecraft, little tendrils sneak into um, King's work at various times. And uh, I think in Dance Macabre, he talks about um, a beloved Lovecraft paperback he had with a ki- as a kid, which I believe is the one with the um, the ghoul peering out from underneath a slab on the front cover of this. Creepy face, which is the possibly the ones um, Stephen King picked up as a probably as a ten year old. So it's yeah, it's, those elements have been in there. I, I suspect almost any story, any horror story also, which is dealing with um, with some kind of cult or um, or um, sorcerers who are trying to open a gateway between worlds in order to um, bring in um, bring back some um, demon that's been locked out of this world. Probably owes something to the. Um, Lovecraft canon. Well, the gate is sort of a Lovecraft. And that gate's tremendous. I love mm. the gate. Yeah. Uh, that film's often so overlooked. Uh, you know, well, and as a you know, twelve or a thirteen-year-old, all of us really were sort of hoping we could find a, a gateway to another world in our in our back garden. <laughs> it, it was to be fervently wished for. Yeah, yes. it's a, a huge um, wish fulfillment. Yeah, that's that our world. Um, what's your? You're a reanimator fan. Yeah, oh. I saw those pictures. I saw those pictures. I, saw I know Stuart Gordon personally. I know, I know. Um, <laughs> didn't didn't you? I remember because of doing trailers from hell, a bunch of us got to go see. Uh, have you seen his his musical? I'm the, afraid I haven't. Do you know about this? 
He's he's done Reanimator as a musical. Oh, I heard about that. And it's, I it's a musical where in the the people in the first three rows have to wear plastic. Masks. Yes, I heard about this. I because so want to see this. It's so bloody. It is uh, so very bloody. But it's very funny. Yep, and it and it just uh, the audiences have such a good time and it was i remember where it was here some small theater and they had to hold it over and we were supposed to stop and go somewhere else they oh said, no, it no, was the uh, the steve allen theater the steve allen and, theater uh, that's right and, and 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 it was um but it, they had to put in extra chairs i mean it was really a, a, a quite a place to be yeah uh, i don't know if i don't know if he's re- restaged that anywhere uh, I don't know, but it was it was pretty joyful. That should be revived. And, then, and didn't he also produce yeah. Jeffrey Combs, uh, Edgar Allan Poe? Oh, that's right. Yeah, no, uh, never more. Yeah, yeah. Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah, the one. Yes, which was which was also great. Which I saw in the same theater. Yeah, um, yeah but it's uh, yeah. You should live here. There's all sorts of interesting. Things. Yeah, that's why I've lost a lot thanks to living on top of a mountain the last ten years. I, I <laughs> dropped out of the film industry and tried to get as far away as possible. And I can't imagine did, why did you would want to do that. I ended up on top of a mountain in the Pyrenees. It didn't work. So how did you come to do... Drag me down by one How did you come to do Color Out of Space? Um, it was a series of, um, of bizarre accidents. I was living in a... a for the last um, 15 years, more or less, I've been living in a, a place in the French Pyrenees, which I picked out because it was the single um, creepiest place I've ever been in. <laughs> um, and it rattled me so much that eventually I decided I was going to have to live there to in order to um, observe what happened. <laughs> and, um, so um, yeah, moved into um, to Montsegur in the Pyrenees, which is uh, the site of the largest mass burning of witches and heretics in European history. They burned three hundred of the villagers back in twelve forty four to try and stop them from ever being a problem again. And um, the first tar road into the valley wasn't cut till the mid 1960s. They were left pretty much to themselves. By then, like in Dunwich, they were all um, not only um, descendants from ancient witches and heretics, but they also were totally inbred. Um, so, um, the I wouldn't have known about it. Have some interesting neighbors, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I, but the, at its bottom line, it was very similar to uh, to yeah, Dunwich from um, Lovecraft stories. And most of the people who visited me there um, remarked on the fact that this was like being in a Lovecraft story. And I felt essentially being a horror fan all my life. I deliberately transitioned from just reading about the material to actually actively living in a supernatural horror novel, which. Um, yeah, um, certainly it was richly amusing for a, a lot of time. And then the, the thought came up, well, maybe we should um, shoot a, 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 like a Lovecraft homage here because it looks so much like something out of his stories. It would be good for a short movie. And, um, there were three of us um, who were um, mucking around um, board and um, we got a, a glow-in-the-dark Ouija board from toy, which had come from Toys R Us. Uh, Screwing around the Ouija board, and the Ouija board suggested we make a short film called um, The Mother of Toads. It said, Make the Mother of Toads, make Mother of Toads. And we said, What's that? And so it said, It's a short story by Clark Ashton Smith. So I then had to go find the short story, and I read it, and I didn't really like the short story. (laughs) Um, I I got back to the Ouija board and said, Okay, what we do now? And it said, Well, don't be faithful to it, adapt it like this, and um, gave us some. Quite a, quite a communicative. Uh, yeah, it was 
three of us at it, and it was very, very, very specific. Um, one, so, one letter at a time or one word at a time? One letter at a time. It gave, 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 a lot of time. Yeah, <laughs> it, it was tedious, but it gave us an outline. It said it, well, we needed to have two American <laughs> tourists who were trying to buy earrings. Wait, or, so the, the Ouija board wrote the outline? It gave us the broad outline, yeah. And we gave script credit to, uh, on the final thing, to all three of us who were in the room at the time, plus to the um, the alleged demon. So, um, to be fair, because we didn't, how does, how does the we didn't really know that? where the so, idea was. He's in the Baronies. There's no writer. No writer. Oh, yeah. Non-union work figures. Yeah, we didn't know where the idea was coming from. And um, we wrote this 20-page 20, this 20 short, and then um, I heard um, literally a, a couple of days later that... Um, David Gregory, the guy who runs the Severin um, label, um, DVD and Blu-ray label, was trying to put together a, um, an anthology um, <clears throat> entitled The Theatre Bazaar and was looking for 20-minute um, segments. And I thought, okay, Mother of Toads, it's kind of on, on theme. And he was, on his, he was going to um, the Cannes Film Festival. So I drove down to Montpellier Railway Station and intercepted his train and thrust um, the 20-page Mother of Toads outline into his hands. And then he got back to us literally about 24 hours later saying, great, we'll, um, we'll you know, do it. And then um, so it gave us 20 grand to shoot the, the short. So it probably made this the fastest transition from page to screen of anything I've ever written. It went, it, we didn't really think about it. We copied it down from the Ouija board and then almost instantaneously there was someone saying, yeah, shoot this. And um, we shot Mother of Toads in um, months ago. As a joke, I cast um, Catriona McCall from Lucia Fulci's The Beyond. And the lead, she, Catriona was running a, um, also lives in the south of France, and was um, yeah, running a sort of guest house um, Airbnb place and had not been in front of a camera for too long, so drafted her in as the witch and um, shot the thing. Um, Theatre Bazaar was backed by a, um, a, a, pri- a, a Basically, I would say who a private individual who had a chunk of family money that he was trying to invest into movies. Uh, um, this guy then loved the short we did, flew out to the location to um, see where it was shot. Um, while he was on the location, proposed to his girlfriend who said yes, he was in a really good mood and turned to me and said, why don't you write a feature-length movie based on H.P. Lovecraft and I'll give you the money for to write the script and we'll finance it. So I went, oh, okay. And um, sat down and wrote the first draft of Color Out of Space um, for the same reasons I'd picked on it as a 13 year old because it was kind of approachable. I figured, okay, we can keep it in one location and um, we have some chance of containing this. Then by the time I'd finished writing the script, um, the guy who'd suggested we write it was already um, bankrupt and in rehab. Uh, <laughs> so we had a script, but no, no one really, um, no owner. And um, this floated around and came into the hands of um, of Spectrevision, and, and I think it was Daniel Noah in particular who um, read the first couple of pages, and it jived with what he'd been looking for as a, I guess, a um, an authentic Lovecraft adaptation. But the, even then, it floated around another um, year or two. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until um, Josh Waller, the producer from Spectrevision, was on set with um, Nick Cage on um, the production of Mandy. That um, all roads lead to Mandy on this show. Oh, yeah. you, do you know that film, Joe? No, no escape. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe it. <laughs> but yeah, Nick, Nick's a big Lovecraft fan. has yeah. a, has all his Arkham House originals and is extremely well read. And um, is keen to do a Lovecraft movie. 
in fact, Nick's great dream is he'd like to play um, Herbert West Reanimator in a reboot one day. Uh-huh. I don't want to be the one responsible because I think it's a bad idea to, re- to remake a good movie. Um, but um, I know Nick's um, super keen on. Um, I get. Yeah, I mean, I would think the the, <laughs> the door would be open to a sort of darker, straighter version. I think. But uh, but how how much straighter that would be with um, Nick in those shoes? Well, I yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I don't yeah. know. Because... You want you want the subdued <laughs> of Joe. For instance. I think the way Nick's going is. I, I love his um his deadpan black comedy and his, yeah. his, his comic timing. But I think there's something of um of Vincent Price about him. Yeah. Uh, increasingly, as he's segued more into um, away from um, romantic leading men or action heroes, and has been leaning towards these cr- these crazy character pieces, um, yeah. he's been reminding me quite a lot of Saint Vincent. That's we discussed this remember a few weeks ago. We were talking about how there aren't those actors anymore, those horror actors who can go consistently from genre film to genre film. Well, that they used to build movies around. Yeah, you know, and there isn't anybody like that. Yeah. yeah, we don't and have I, any horror stars left. And I, I suggested Nicholas Cage. Yeah, I think he, he has yeah. it within him. Plus, I think he also has the will to to go there because um, he really does love the material. Yeah, which um, so made him a joy to work with. Yeah, and you and, can there's room. He can do that and continue to be. I mean, I love his. I keep hoping he'll work with Herzog again too because the he's got that Kinskian aspect as well. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I find him enjoyable on screen for the same exact reasons yeah. that I find um, Kinski so um, yeah. impossible to look away from. I think Marlon Brando for the same reason. Because yeah. you, they, there's something unpredictable. Yep. You, either it's a, so similar to unleashing like a, a bag full of like frightened cats into the into the <laughs> shot. Or as you, as you say, action or, um, you know, just chasing a horse through the background. You know that something is going to happen that is... Um, it's off script and a little bit yeah. unpredictable, and it, it just it just makes it so much more interesting. When you think about how many movies Kinski made, I mean, yeah. it, 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 as you start to go through the movies that came out all over the world in the '60s and '70s, uh, mm. it's just astonishing how often he turns up, and it, in every country, yeah, you know, I mean, he was he he just constantly worked. I think he did it all for cash. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think he had, it doesn't seem to have had any quality control over, uh, no, just, over you, the material it, he took. I, you know, if there's a job, I'll take it. Yeah. You know? well, and, but he's always fascinating. Same time, apparently, he famously turned down um, Spielberg on Raiders of the Last Dark. <laughs> uh, really the, yeah, he was, they, they want him to be the, 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 yeah, the main Nazi torturer guy and Kinski um, had a strop and refused to do it. That's a little, but that's so obvious. <laughs> that's so obvious, I think. He thought there was nothing he could bring to it. But he, he couldn't tell a good movie when he was in one. And I know in his autobiography, he's writing about being trapped on the set of Dr. Zivago and that it's going on for weeks right, and weeks. Yeah. He says something like, um, I could shoot this rubbish in a week. <laughs> um, and then goes on describing the olfactory details of the Spanish woman he's sleeping with. <laughs> exactly. Chum, but it's, um... but no, I, I saw um, uh, Herzog and Cage together at a screening of, of Bad Lieutenant and, and Werner talked about wanting to make a movie about firefighters, California firefighters, um, and, uh, uh, you know, in the, in the woods, in forest fires. And his plan was what he really wanted to do is he wanted to wait until the season when these things happen and then have a cast and crew ready to go and actually film in a real forest fire. And Nicholas Cage jumped up and said, I have to be in that film. And 
I've never believed an actor more than, than I, I genuinely believe that if Herzog was going to go shoot a movie in a forest fire, Nicolas Cage would happily go do that. Totally. Yeah. That sounds, <laughs> that, that sounds great. I mean, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> and so, I would watch that movie. I, I, I'm totally ready. I'm, 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 I'm ready to buy a ticket now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, folks, if there are any any forest fires breaking out after this show, you'll know who to go to. Exactly. Yeah, I, I used to do that when I was a teenager. Um, the second big Super 8 movie we made, which was a, a bloated, hour-long epic, much too long, was set in a post-Holocaust um, a, a sort of a near-future world. And the only way we could do it was to um, chase the the, the, um, the the nearest bushfire. We had huge bushfires in South Africa as well as in Australia or here. And um, as a 16-year-old, 15, 16-year-old would jump in the car and drive to the nearest bit of destruction and um, oh. put on um, ragged clothes and makeup and stuff as if we were um, survivors or something and, and shoot in the peripheries of the of, of the fire, which um, Fantastic. It's, it's fabulous. You've got um, you know, just fields of blasted trees, remains of burned out Roger houses. would call that free production value. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, uh, exactly. after the Malibu fire, I was living out in Malibu back in um, the um, mid-90s. I was very lucky that the house I was in was one of the few houses in that area up at Big Rock that didn't get blasted. But just looking at all the stumps of the neighboring houses and the blasted chimneys, the occasional bathtubs. It looks like left. that again, though. Yeah, it, 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 you know, I was amazed that nobody snuck a movie in the middle of all that because clearly you're waking up in um, some kind of post-Holocaust nightmare. Yeah. Did you ever set anybody on fire accidentally while you were doing those? or? No, no, never uh, accidentally. That's good. <laughs> Only on purpose. <laughs> Only on purpose, exactly. Um, well, Richard, thank you so very much for coming in. And uh, and the title uh, of the movie is? Colorado Space. And it's possibly playing at a theater near you, but it's certainly playing on a streaming and yes, platform near you. Yes. Well, we're doing so. good this week anyway, because I think Fantastic. as of last night, we have a better um, per-screen average than Bad Boys. And so really? they're, wi they're widening the platform. That's which is, Nice. Which is crazy. We're actually, oh, wow. Right now, this very moment. That's color, why he's still here. He would have no Ah, he, he told left. me he stayed for our show. <laughs> yeah, no, the, the, the great Cthulhu's tendrils snaked out and caught me by the ankles. So I'm still here. I also want to say, you know, I, I, your story as to how you ended up making this film, starting with a Ouija board, I, I, people constantly ask, I'm sure you get it, you know, how do you get a movie made? And there is no one road uh, to getting a movie made. But you have perhaps offered, um, I have never heard that. Yeah, you can't, can't reproduce that. So that was a, a series of ridiculous where, accidents. Where is this Ouija board down? Um, yeah, I think it's propped up gathering dust back home. Uh, it, it started this um, weird course. And does it have representation? Or? Um, <laughs> the, um, the, 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 the little demonic entity that claimed it was uh, it was talking to us does now have an IMDb listing. It does? Um, yeah, thanks to the, 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 the screenwriting credit on Theatre Bazaar means that, yeah, Moag, the thing that was talking to us now is, has his own IMDb listing. Fantastic. Uh, it's, it's, it's doing pretty good. I love the idea that it's touched by Swifty Lazar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Richard, thank you so uh, much. It's been an absolute joy. Thanks, on, thanks for having me. Our show was recorded in beautiful downtown Burbank. The official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the movies that made me. Hi, I'm Neil. 
And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.